Well, if you have your Bibles, if you'd open to Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and we'll begin our time with the reading of God's Word. And let's stand together. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1. We'll read to verse 6, but our study will go to verse 5. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes, excuse me, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Please be seated. We'll do a, a brief review of the previous <coughs> portion of Scripture. We looked at weeks ago, verse 16, and how that is the heart of the gospel. The doctrine that we are justified by faith alone and not by works. That is the heart of the gospel message. The often... Oftentimes, when the gospel is preached, the objection that is raised is that this promotes antinomianism. If we are saved by faith alone, that what promotes holiness and righteousness, it undercuts sanctification. Christ becomes a servant of sin. Verse 17, well, Paul's response is a, a, a defiant no. This is an impossibility. It's not possible for the gospel to promote sin or unrighteousness. Why? Because verses 19 through 20, the gospel is not a static message. It's not just a truth, an idea like the world. where you, Any idea in this world, uh, for it to have power, you have to abide by its truths. Um, I saw, you know, my, I like watching Sports Center. My wife likes watching, well, I like watching ESPN. She likes watching TLC. And on TLC, one of the shows they have is Extreme Couponing. Uh, what kind of show is that? It's all about women. Uh, they save money, clipping coupons, and going to the grocery store. We saw this lady. She bought like $300 worth of groceries. And at the end of all her couponing, she paid 7 bucks. She's walking out, like strutting, like she won the lottery. And everybody's like... Clapping, applauding her because she bought all this groceries for seven bucks. And so she's, she's an advocate of couponing. But for that idea to have power, you need to coupon yourself, right? You need to clip, you need to use. If you just watch that program, that idea has no power. Well, people think that's the gospel. But Paul says, no, antinomianism is not a possibility with the gospel because gospel is not just an idea. It has transformative power to anyone who believes the gospel that he does these two of many things. The gospel kills you and gospel raises you. That's why good names for your good name for your church, Cross Life Bible Church, right? Like Christ was crucified and he was raised. Likewise, every believer united with Christ is at that moment dead to the law, dead to sin, has been raised to the newness of life by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, antinomianism is not a possibility. It's only for those who deny the gospel, not for the true believers of Christ. And Paul uses himself as an illustration where he has experienced the power of the gospel in his own life, where he has been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, the raised life, the new life given to him as a regenerate believer, I live by faith. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then verse 21, actually the sinner is the one who nullifies the grace of God. Right? Anyone who nullifies the grace of God by seeking to be justified before by, God, by works, that person is saying Christ died in vain. That person is a transgressor. So Paul re recounted his speech his public confrontation to Peter in Antioch, he reiterated it for the Galatian believers. Why? Because they were, in the, they were being tempted with the very same thing. And then chapter 3, verse 1, he turns the tables on them. Right? He was speaking to Peter, and he was recounting to the Galatians what he told Peter. In chapter 3, verse 1, without missing a beat, 
he addresses the Galatian Christians. And he begins by saying, Oh, foolish Galatians. Right? So, not a very nice way to address a group of believers, fellow Christians. Later on, in verse 19, he calls them brothers. Chapter 1, verse 19. Later on, chapter 4, he calls them his children. But here, he calls them foolish. Anoito, which means uh, thoughtless, senseless, without thinking, uh, without understanding. You are being foolish. And then in the Greek, that uh, particle is there. Oh, foolish Galatians. Right, for that emphasis, they're not just foolish Galatians. Paul is exasperated. There's a sense of, sense of ton of anger. He is, is frustrated. He is upset by them. Oh, foolish Galatians. J.B. Phillips, in his, um, in his uh, paraphrasing of Galatians 3.1, paraphrases it this way. He, puts, he put it, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you cannot be so idiotic. He's calling them foolish, stupid, senseless, silly. He's calling them out. Now, parents here can understand Paul's heart here in this passage. Parents can understand because there's that verse in in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I do not exasperate your children. I understand that verse. I shepherd my heart with that verse. But I question God sometimes why he doesn't have a verse following that says, children, do not exasperate your parents. Right? Do not provoke your parents in anger. Because it seems to me, they provoke me much more than I ever provoke them. Right? There are times where I, I understand Paul's heart, where I see my children do things and I just makes no sense. Right, it exasperates me. I want to say, oh, foolish Elizabeth. <laughs> no, right? Oh, foolish Ethan. One day I walked into our, his room and I saw him biting on the bed frame. Right? <laughs> we got him an espresso bed frame from Ikea somewhere. I spent my hard-earned money and bought this. And he had bitten all across the bed frame. Like, Ethan, that's not chocolate. That's wood. What are you doing? You know better than that. You're not. And he had, he had nothing to say. Right, times like this, you, parents, you understand, right? Hank, you, you understand what I'm saying. Chip and Joyce, um, Julia, you understand. Well, this happens in ministry as well, right? It's not just in the family, but ministry. Like in the, the reason for my gray hair is 50% DNA, 50% ministry. <laughs> People in the church will cause you to be frustrated and exasperated and say, what's going on, right? So Paul's not being just necessarily just mean here. He's kind of shocking them. He's calling them out. He's exposing their thoughtlessness, their idiocy, their senselessness in what they're doing. Now, why call, call them fools? Now, if, if, if the, Paul was calling them fools because they did not know something, that's not right. That's not fair. Right? Paul's saying like, guys, you guys didn't know this. And he calls them fools. That's, that's being mean. Uh, you know, for, for me to presume my kids to be able to do my taxes, right? Do long division or, or change my oil or exegete a passage. That would be a cruel dad for me to call them out for that. But if I call them foolish for when they knew better, right? They're old enough. They were taught this. They were, they've experienced this. Then it, it might be a good way to scold them, kind of jolt them awake. Well, that is what Paul is doing. Paul calls them level one foolishness. Level two comes later. right? Level one fools because um, they are going against what they themselves have experienced. It's not they were lacking information or knowledge. If they didn't know, it makes sense. Paul, it would be harsh on them. They didn't know any better. But no, they knew better. How do we know this? Because they have experienced Right? They've experienced the gospel, experienced God's grace and the message of the gospel in a certain way. So they should have known better than to believe that they were justified by the law instead of by faith alone. I mean, Paul is so, um, this is so unacceptable to him. This is so, like, it doesn't make sense to him. He thinks someone has bewitched them. Verse 1, who has bewitched you? 
right? Uh, the Greek word there is, the literal meaning is uh, cast an evil eye. Right? Someone has cast a spell on you, sorcery. The, the metaphorical meaning is somebody has just influenced you and led you astray. Someone has uh, under the radar snuck in and take your senses and robbed you and is leading you astray. Who has done this? The idea is someone has uh, Jedi'd you. Do you guys know that term? Right? Remember Star Wars, well, episode four, right? They're going to that city and there's these like those soldiers. That's so long ago. I should have I researched it on YouTube this week, right? Those soldiers and like, they're like, oh, we need your ID. And uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, no, you don't need our ID. And they're like, yeah, we don't need your ID. Wow, he just Jedi'd him, right? So who has Jedi'd you? Uh, my wife and I have this uh, running debate at our family, you know, we play Settlers of Catan with friends, and man, I was on a roll. I was like on a winning streak. And my wife, after our friends in the church left, she was all angry. James, like, the only reason you won is because you have this influence over these guys, and like, you, you tell them trade one wood for ten sheep, and they do it <laughs> because you're their pastor and you're their influence over them. I'm like, no, I'm just good at this game. <laughs> Right, settler is my game. That's why I'm winning. It's like, no, it's because you Jedi them and they'll give you everything because you're their pastor. That debate continues to this day. So Paul's saying, it's not on your own. Somebody has come in and bewitched you, cast a spell on you for you to deny not an idea or truth. They're denying your experience, what you have experienced for yourself. Now, undoubtedly, he's referring to the false teachers, these Judaizers who have come, right? They've snuck in, and they're trying to add burdens, add the law, right? Indirectly, it's not a frontal attack on the gospel. It's an in their flanking position, indirect attack on the gospel by adding the gospel to sanctification. No doubt, he's calling out the Judaizers, these false teachers, but that you in the Greek in verse 1 is singular, there's a specific person, one person who is responsible for this, this defection. And who is it? I agree with the commentators. Paul is talking about the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion. First Peter 5, 8, devours someone. How does he devour us? The, the main way, his main MO, his key way is by supplying the gospel. That's his favorite tactic. He wants to obscure the gospel before our eyes. He wants us to backslide back into seeking to be justified, accepted by God by works of the law rather than by faith alone. That's what Satan is trying to do with every believer. He wants us to say no to grace and yes to the law, no to the indicatives and yes to the imperatives. And this is exactly what Christ talked about in Matthew 13. We'll speak about it at the end. But when you have this heart and the word of God is sown in our hearts and it's sown by the pathway, who comes and takes away the gospel from our hearts? Where we don't remember the gospel. We don't remember what God has done for us to the cross. Who is the one that takes that seed away? It is Satan himself. Paul is saying this is spiritual warfare at work. Our enemy, he seeks to thwart our standing before God, our walk in Christ. How? By supplanting the gospel practically in our lives and by displacing the gospel and replacing it with ourselves and our works righteousness. Who has bewitched you where you are denying what you've experienced? That is why you're being senseless, thoughtless, without understanding. You are being fools. You're being idiots because you're being carried away by this lie. All right. So what is it that they experienced that they're denying uh, as believers? First is the message of the gospel they heard from Paul himself, right? They were gathered together in a church like this, and Paul stood before them. And before them, what did Paul do? He preached the gospel. First, two, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, now, publicly portrayed, prographo, could mean written beforehand, or it could mean in a, in a locative sense, uh, clearly, vividly portrayed, powerfully portrayed. So Paul preached the gospel so powerfully, 
so effectively with so much passion and tears that when they heard the gospel and they believed it, it was as if they were at the foot of Calvary and they saw Jesus crucified. That's how powerful it was. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. It was a spiritual experience, right? The gospel dug deep, went to their hearts, it sunk down, and they saw Jesus crucified. They were there. That's how powerful it was. And how does Paul know this? Because he was the one who preached it to them. And yet they're denying not just this experience, but a specific specific part of this experience is that whenever, wherever Paul went to preach, he preached Christ crucified, perfect tense. It means it's once for all with continuing benefits. Greek grammar. Paul preached, 1 Corinthians 1.23, I preached Christ crucified. 2.2, when I came to you, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So when Paul went to preach, he didn't come with a list of rules and regulations. He didn't come with a codex of all these things that rituals that you must obey, circumcision, Sabbath, and dietary laws, and how many books of the Bible you must read, and how many hours you must pray. He didn't come with rules and imperatives and commands, applications. He came with this single message of Jesus Christ crucified, perfect tense, meaning it's done for you. It's accomplished. As Christ declared on, on the cross, the telestai, it is finished. That was Paul's message. And that was Paul's message again and again and again and again. Just like what James was saying. Every time he said, it's finished, he's crucified. He is not dying on the cross where now you have to do ABC to cooperate with Jesus for your salvation and sanctification. That was not his message. They knew that because he emphasized again and again, crucified, crucified, perfect tense, once for all. The benefits continue, but it's a historical event that Christ accomplished for our salvation, sanctification, and glorification. They heard it and they experienced it. Paul repeatedly told them, and that yet they're here. They're acting as fools. They're being idiots. They're being senseless and thoughtless because after that, Paul goes away. A few months, a few weeks, a few days, a few minutes later, they're seeking to be led astray by these false teachers, seeking to be justified and sanctified by works to finish what Christ has started. So Paul is aghast. Paul is indignant. He, he is at the end of himself where he, is, he shows himself angry and upset by this statement. Uh, I have a Calvin quote. We need to understand the heart of the pastor here. right? John Calvin said this. Okay, He will say this real quick. Uh, For when we hear that the Son of God with all His blessings is rejected, and that His death is esteemed as nothing, what godly mind will not break out into indignation? So if if a pastor comes and preaches the law to you, adds all these burdens, and you want to just in one ear, out one ear, I understand that. But the pastor comes and he's preaching Jesus and him crucified on your behalf. And you just let that slip away, slip away and you let go of that truth. What godly pastor will not become indignant over this? So Paul was um, upset because they forgot this experience, forgot what Paul had preached to them. Secondly, uh, they not only forgot the message that Paul preached, they forgot their conversion experience. Verse 2 want you to know this is past tense. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Right. Go back to when you were saved. Go back to your conversion. Believers at Galatia, chicken or the egg, right? Carp, horse before the cart or cart before the horse. What came first? Was it faith or was it works? Right. Did you hear the gospel 
and then you were circumcised, right? or then you went to a certain teacher and they prayed for you, you went to a special conference, you went to a special seminar, you read certain books, you stopped committing certain sins, you devoted yourself to certain good works, and then the Spirit came in power. Is that what happened? Or did you hear the gospel, you believed the gospel, and then you received the Holy Spirit? What happened? You know your conversion. You're being fools because you are forgetting your own experience of salvation. If I were to ask, if I were to ask you, go right now and, and, and pick you out and say, can you come up and give us a teaching on salvation? You're a Christian, right? Teach us about salvation. You might be hesitant, right? You might, you might decline the invitation because, hey, for me to teach about salvation, I need time. I need to prep. I need to read. I need to clear my mind. I need to organize my notes. I need to study a little bit. But if I were to ask you, come up and share your salvation testimony, if you're a believer, you'd be like, I can do that. Why? Because you don't have to study. You don't have to research for your salvation testimony. You don't have to listen to sermons or read. And there's no other greater expert about your salvation testimony than you. Why? Because you experienced it. I can't tell you what you experience, I don't even know. And you can't tell me if we know anything is what we have experienced. So Paul is saying, you experienced this. You, you ought to know what happened. The order, order of salvation, how you believed and the Spirit came. And yet what you are now doing is you are preaching a different message, a, a, a twisted, right, disordered message where it's works, and then the Holy Spirit, right? So Paul is calling them fools. He's saying you receive the Spirit, and the Spirit here in verse 2 is capital S, because it's not a force that emanates from God. It's not a power from God. It is God himself. At the moment of your faith, at the moment of your regeneration and accompanying faith, God gave you himself the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you and began the most important relationship for all believers. Right? We are saved by the Spirit. We are born again by the Spirit. We are made alive by the Holy Spirit. We Spirit dwells within us. We are to walk by the Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. We are to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is our caretaker, is our custodian, is our counselor. He is our paraclete. He, this is the age of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has birthed this church and has, will birth Cross Life Bible Church. Right? This is the most important relationship by which we are united with Christ through spirit baptism. Christ dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. And we are in Christ by the Holy Spirit. This all began at the moment of faith, not subsequently, after we had obeyed to a certain degree, after we had done a certain level of workspace righteousness. No, it was by faith alone. Paul wants to ask, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Simply by trusting in Christ. So Paul is... Um, that's why he calls them fools. And then in verse 3, is it verse 3? He goes on to level 2 foolishness. Uh, this is the, you know, some people are born foolish. Some people achieve foolishness. And some people have foolishness thrust upon them. The rare is the person who achieves this MVP foolishness. Uh, this is the all-star, right? Where Paul says, are you so foolish? Right? You're just being foolish. You're being like mind-bogglingly foolish. And that, that word is in the Greek, that relative degree, like heightened sense of foolishness. And why is this level two? Because you are denying not your past experience, you are denying your current experience. What's going on right now? So it makes sense. You know what? It's been a long day. I was busy at work, forgot my salvation testimony. It was a few months ago. It happens to every one of us. And preaching, Man, James, you preach all the time. You preach so long. I forgot what you were saying last week or two months ago. But if you're forgetting what you're experiencing right now, like, hello, like this moment, you are forgetting that you are here at Cornerstone listening to the gospel right now, and you are oblivious of it, that is like <laughs> scandalously high foolishness, 
level two. And that is what Paul's saying. You are guilty of not just level one foolishness, but level two because you are denying, you are ignorant of what you're currently experiencing. First 3B, note from here, it's all present tense. All right, this is what they're currently going through. Having begun by the Spirit, present tense, are you now being perfected by the flesh? All right? Are you now? Is this what you're experiencing? Is this what you're believing? Is this what you're saying? Are you saying instead of Philippians 1, 6, he will begin a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion. Instead of Hebrews 12, 2, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Are you saying and are you experiencing that Christ is insufficient? He is weak. He is not powerful. He is not mighty. He didn't say to Palestine on the cross. He just began the work. But he needs our help. He needs our cooperation. Uh, he's like so many uh, young people. They can start, but they don't finish well, right? They start in the beginning of the quarter. They're all shooting for A's. Halfway in, they're shooting for B's. And at the end, they're praying for a C, right? That's Jesus. He had a good start, but he can't finish what he started. So we need to come and assist him to finish this work of sanctifying us and glorifying us. We need to perfect in the flesh what he has begun in the spirit. They are denying the fundamental truth of the gospel. They are saying Christ is insufficient. And so they are saying we are saved by works, but we continue, or saved by faith, but we continue in works. And guys, uh, I have some quotes up here by trusted uh, teachers of the Bible, just to show you, you know, it's not just James Shin on a, on a deep end. It's his, like, um, soapbox. It's his personal shtick. Right? He, he loves this thing of sanctification by faith alone. No, this is affirmed by trusted teachers, trusted uh, 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 students of the Bible. Two lengthy quotes for you by Philip Ryken and Thomas Schreiner. Philip Ryken s- said, Sanctification is the process by, w- by which a sinner becomes more holy. Christians usually think of sanctification as everything that happens after justification, which comes at the beginning of the Christian life. Their thinking goes something like this. I was justified by faith when I first came to Christ. Now that I'm justified, I must move on to my sanctification. It is true that sanctification follows justification, but justification never gets left behind. We will never stand before God on the basis of our own righteousness. We can stand before God only on the basis of the righteousness we have received by faith. To be sure, we are becoming more holy all the time. Having been justified, we are now becoming sanctified. But we cannot use our obedience, as imperfect as it is, to establish our righteousness before God. To put this another way, we cannot base our justification on our sanctification. The Christian always looks back to the gospel and never to the law as the basis for his righteousness before God. Thomas Streiner um, just wrote two great books, 40 Questions About the Law and the Gospel, and he just published his commentary on Galatians. And in that commentary, he wrote this, Verse 3 is one of the most important verses for the Christian life. Many believers are taught that justification is by faith alone, while sanctification is by faith and works, as if sanctification were a cooperative effort involving both ourselves and the Lord. Such a perspective may be misleading. Believers do not begin the Christian life by faith and through the Spirit and then continue it by works through the flesh. Sanctification is lived out in the same way as justification. It is by faith alone and through the Spirit alone. Such a view does not lead to the conclusion that good works are unnecessary. But all good works are the fruit of faith and the evidence of the powerful work of the Spirit. Good works are there, but it comes after faith. It's not the source of faith. Believers please God when they trust Him for everything that comes their way. 
knowing that he has been faithful to forgive their sins and that he will provide everything they need. Paul argues here that progress in the Christian life does not differ from how he began the Christian life. In both instances, the believer trusts God and does not rely, does not rely on the flesh or any native ability to produce good works. He continues this reasoning, Paul does, in verse 5. Right. In verse 2, it's past tense. Verse 3, present tense. Verse 5, again, present tense. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, and he works miracles. Now this is New Testament, before closing of the canon. They were doing spiritual works, miracles. For us, right, that age is past. For us, we're filled with the Spirit, and we have fruits of the Spirit. So the Spirit is actively working in our midst just in a different way. But for them, there were those dynamic works being produced by the Spirit in their lives. Does he do all of this by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What is the catalyst of the Spirit working in your life right now? Paul appeals to the experience of the Galatians and by him recording it here, he is telling them and he is telling us, this is the normative experience of all Christians. Every Christian, right, when they trust in Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is active in their lives. If your experience is inconsistent with this truth, we must change, adjust our testimony, our experience, so that it might line up with the Word of God. Right? If your experience is, I, was, I became a believer, I really did, but I didn't receive the Holy Spirit until I went to this conference. I went to this seminar. Someone laid hands on me, and then I received the Holy Spirit, and then I was baptized, and I was filled with the Spirit. That is not consistent with the Scriptures. This is a normative experience of every Christian, and Paul, by recording it for us, right, has all experiences and says this is a true experience of every believer. That spirit is received and activated by faith and not by works. I've got one more quote here from the New American Commentary by Timothy George. He does he explains this verse better than I can, so I'm just going to read from him. He moves into the present tense. And says that now the works of the Spirit, even miracles, occur because you believe and because you no longer observe the law. This does not mean, of course, that Christians are not obeying the law. It must mean that the Spirit works only as because Christians are not relying on works attainment and are consciously and continuously resting in Christ alone for their acceptability and completeness. Paul links the spirit and the gospel in the most inseparable terms. When he says that the gospel is the power of God, here he says that the spirit works only as you believe the gospel. He is saying that the power of God works in, in and through us only as the gospel is applied and used, believed, applied and used. We will see as we progress through Galatians that our failure to obey and conform to Christ's character is not a matter of simple willfulness and that we cannot treat our failure simply by trying harder at the root of all our disobedience, our particular ways in which we continue to seek control of our lives through systems of works righteousness. The way to progress as a Christian is to continually repent and uproot these systems the same way we became Christians namely by the vivid depiction and re-depiction of Christ's saving work for us and the abandoning of self-trusting efforts to complete ourselves, we must go back again and again to the gospel of Christ crucified so that our hearts are more deeply gripped by the reality of what he did and who we are in him. Final quote for this portion of the study before we get to our closing. Pastor MacArthur said, Paul's argument is itself powerful. If a person has received eternal salvation through trust in the crucified Christ, received the fullness of the Holy Spirit the same moment he believed, and has the Father's Spirit-endowed power working within him, how could he hope to enhance that out of his own insignificant human resources 
by some meritorious effort. Paul is telling us simply this. Our experience confirms scripture. Where either from our salvation or our current Christian life, that God finishes the work the way he started it, by faith. We, were, we got into Christianity by faith, and we continue as Christians by faith, and we will be glorified to be with God by faith. The way into the Christian life is also the way on in the Christian life. That's Paul's message in verses 1 through 5. Experience, though, is not self-authenticating. In verse 6 on, he will base this on the scriptures, going back to the Old Testament. But for our study, Paul is telling us our experience affirms the scriptures. And scripture must affirm our experience for it to be valid. But if those two are together, our experiences and scripture both affirm that we're justified not by works, but we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Three closing thoughts. Just these three things I want to just shepherd your hearts this morning and close our time. I want to just encourage those of you who are serving in our church in any capacity, if you're leading our church, I want to exhort and and plead with you to emphasize again and again the gospel of Christ, but particularly this aspect of the gospel, that our message is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Perfect tense. That Jesus has accomplished it. He has finished the work. Therefore, our job is to believe that message, not just to scurry around, right? to do something, to earn his approval. No, we earn his approval by faith alone. If you're serving in our children's ministry, please don't make our kids moral kids. I don't want our children to be righteous kids who are separated from God because of their damnable righteousness. The Christian church, that is not our message. To make children better, more moral, more obedient, more honoring to parents. That is not our message. For the care group leaders, for those who are teaching in our ministry, we must emphasize in our preaching, in our teaching, in our shepherding, our counseling, this perfect tense of vividly portraying that Christ has finished the work. The benefits continue as we trust in him, but we do not add to his work whatsoever. He has accomplished it. Secondly, we want to maintain this key or this order. This, uh, we want to keep the horse before the cart. We want to keep the order of the gospel aligned rightly. That for our salvation and our sanctification, gospel is preached. We believed. Therefore, God gave us the Holy Spirit. Not just in the past, but right now. Gospel is preached. We believe, present tense. And then God continues to supply to us the Holy Spirit that we might walk in him and bear the fruit of the Spirit. You reverse this. You reverse this, and you damage the gospel. You supplant the gospel. If we say we receive the Holy Spirit, let's say present tense, because of our obedience, the result will be either you will be proud of yourself because of your obedience, being a spiritual Christian will be a result of your labor and your efforts, you trying harder. There'll be just so much boast in your heart, so much self-reliance. There'll be so much trust in your own works to the point where you don't need Jesus anymore. Right? You're not clinging to the cross. You're not hoping in Christ. You're not desperate for him. There'll be a self-reliance, a self-confidence, and a boasting 
this proud, judgmental attitude where you're criticizing others, at the same time boasting of yourselves. And then when you fall, and you will fall. Right? God disciplines his children, right? not for obedience, to increase their faith. Right? God loves us so much. If you're a child of God, you know, he, he will discipline you. Right? Through your singleness, through your dating relationship, through your marriage. If those things don't work, God will use your kids. Right? <laughs> kids just are powerful. God will use your kids right, to uh, humble you where you will fail. You will fail and you will fall so hard. Right? And you will despair. Why? God's trying, trying to rescue you from yourself to stand on grace alone. It is imperative that we get this order right, whether for our salvation or our sanctification. It is faith that causes us, that causes God to give the Spirit for us to walk and grow in Him. And then finally, you might say, well, James, uh, whatever you're saying, it's not working. It sounds good. I can see it's scriptural, but practically in my life, I'm hearing this gospel message again and again every week, and I'm not growing. I'm not experiencing what you're telling me. I'm not growing in holiness. I'm not growing in love for the word. I'm not growing in service to the church or love for the lost. If anything, I am becoming more complacent, and I fear I'm straying from Christ. What is going on? If what you're saying is true, how come it's not happening for me? Well, if that is your experience, that is not an indictment against the gospel. It's not because the gospel is defective. It's not because the gospel is not powerful or not sufficient for you. It's not because you're a strange kind of person where for you, God can't work. Um, The reason is the parable that Christ gave in Matthew 13, now you, you know this parable, right? The sower goes out and he sows the seed of the seed of uh, the, um, the word of the kingdom. Right? The seed represents the word of the what is the word of the kingdom? It is the gospel. It's the message of Christ, right? It's the it's the word about the about the Lord. Uh, it's the word of truth. The sower goes out and he's sowing, and then some uh, land by the pathway and it's taken away by, by a bird. Some land in a rocky place, and then it starts to grow, but it withers and dies. Another lands in a place that's thorny, and it grows a little bit, and it's choked out by the thorns. And the fourth, the soil is good. The seed lands, produces a harvest of 30, 60, 90 fold. A great harvest because of this one seed. The disciples asked Jesus, explain this parable to us. And he's saying the four soils represents four kinds of hearts that are in the world. So we go out to the world and we preach the gospel. And some people, it lands in the pathway. It doesn't even land in their hearts. It just bounces off. Why? They have a hard heart. They're stubborn. They're cemented in their sinfulness, their self-righteousness. And there is no Room for God in their heart. So it's immediately rejected. So Satan takes it away. It's as if they've never heard the gospel in the first place. Another person is, they have this rocky soil. So you preach the gospel to them, and there is like joy. There is a semblance of spiritual life. And yet, it doesn't have roots. Right? It's a rocky soil. It doesn't go deep. Therefore, it withers and it dies. Right? They didn't take it to heart. Right? They didn't trust it. It was just an intellectual agreement with the gospel. They didn't count the cost. They didn't trust in the gospel with all their hearts. So the seed dies. Third group is the thorns and thistles. It's these people who look like they received the gospel, but their hearts are so filled with anxieties for this world, cares and worries, right? Worldly concerns. They're so concerned about their education, their future status, their, their careers, money, and concerns of this world, it chokes out the word, the gospel, and they're not saved. The fourth is the good heart. They hear the gospel, they receive it, and they're saved. 
Now, if the gospel is not just for non-Christians, if the gospel is for non-Christians and Christians, if the gospel's message is to us, then we can't be glib and say, wow, I'm one of those who had a good heart, and I'm a Christian now. My friend, Thorny Heart, my friend, Rocky Saul, he was walking with Christ for a few few years, and now he's not walking with Christ. My relative, hard heart. But me, I had a good heart, that's why I'm a Christian. I'm okay, they're not okay. If you are not experiencing Christ, you're not experiencing God and the Holy Spirit, and the gospel is being preached to you every Sunday, and your heart is not melted by it, could it be that you have a hard heart? You have a heart that's hardened and stubborn and rebellious, and you don't want to repent. You want to hold on to your sin. You want to control your life. You want to hold on to your righteousness. You don't want to submit yourself wholesale to Jesus and His grace. Your heart is close to the gospel. So you are here looking at me right now, but your heart is far away. Your heart must better be a million miles away. No concern because your heart is so hard, it just bounces right off. That is the reason why you're not growing. Could it be there's a semblance of joy on Sundays, but during the week you live life as a practical atheist. Your heart motivation, your spiritual stirrings, what is prompting you? Externally, you look better than non-Christians, but in your heart, there is no love for God. There is no cherishing of Jesus. There is no wholesale heart repentance in your heart for your sins and your righteousness. Could it be it's a rocky soil? Your soul filled with yourself or thorns and thistles. Your heart is so filled with concerns of this world. Your life, the seed is choked out every week. Could it be it is your heart and it's not an indictment at all whatsoever in the gospel of Christ? If your heart is good, if you're humble, if you're repentant, if you are trusting in the gospel, in the gospel, every person, every Christian takes root and radically changes the inner man. Or for that person, Jesus becomes everything. It becomes the most important thing, important person in their lives. This happens every week. That's why I believe this hour is the most important hour for you this week. Every Sunday we gather together at this holy hour for you to be listening, for you to be listening with faith. That is everything. Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, the main benefit that is obtained by preaching is by the impression made upon the mind in the time of it. So for you right now, for you to be thinking about what you're going to obey, how you're going to obey, how are you going to apply these truths, that's that's not the purpose of preaching. The purpose is that this time right now, as you're listening to the gospel, the impression that is made upon you, and you trust in that message, that is the most profitable thing about, the, about preaching the gospel. I'll continue. The main benefit that is obtained by preaching is by impression made upon the mind the time of it and not by an effect that arises afterwards by a remembrance of what was delivered. And though an after remembrance of what was heard in a sermon is oftentimes very profitable, yet for the most part, That remembrance is from an impression, the words made in the heart in the time of it. Leave it open, leave it on. I want you guys, this is Edwards, the greatest theological mind America has ever produced. He understands the gospel and the human heart. And he said, when we listen to the gospel being preached, what is important for us is not how we're going to, Obey this during the week, but at that moment, trusting in that message, trusting in Christ who was vividly portrayed as crucified on your behalf. That is the profit. That is the benefit. That is the power. I am all for note-taking. I praise God that we are a note-taking church. But I pray that you are not hiding behind your note-taking. And you're not applying faith, you're not listening, you're not trusting, it's an external act. 
We do this in school. We do this in your meetings. I, I pray you're not doing this in the church, in the worship service, when, the, when Christ is preached. That you're not just listening to it as if just listening will benefit your heart. That is thorns and thistles. That is rocky soil. That's a stubborn, hard-hearted heart. Hebrews 4.2 said this, Good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Dear brothers and sisters, could it be? It's not work. God is not working. You're not experiencing the Spirit. You're not experiencing Jesus who is raised, who is here by the Holy. You're not experiencing God because of your heart and heart. Because your heart is filled with the law and your righteousness and what you must do and you're seeking to perfect in the flesh what Christ began by the Spirit. Could it be you're not applying faith to the gospel being preached? You're just hearing it and you're walking along as if somehow automatically that will benefit you. And the scripture is clear. I beg of you to repent. And every Sunday, when the gospel is preached, trust in it, and through it, see the beauty of Christ, crucified once for all on our behalf, so that we are adopted as His sons, justified forever, once for all, until His return. Let us pray. Father, we acknowledge that we are, we are fools. We are those who do not know the treasure that's been given to us in the gospel, in your Son, and in the Holy Spirit. We are so arrogant. We are so filled with ourselves. We think that gospel is helpful, but we can do this Christian life on our own. We can work it out and finish out what you started and we just need you for the big and important things, but on the lower level or medium level things, we can accomplish it on our own. And how just foolish we are. We are going against not just the gospel, not just the scriptures, but what is so evident to us, self-evident to us, our own experiences. God, we uh, repent. We ask you to give us faith. Lord, help us to see our, our sins. Help us to see our, our sinfulness and our righteousness. Lord, clear away how deceived we are and help us to see the filthy rags that we have clothed ourselves with instead of the beautiful garb, the righteous garb, the pure white garb of, our, of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray as we trust in you that the seed of the Word will take root in our hearts it would draw from our head to our hearts. It would grip us. It would take hold of us. Lord, it would, it would transform our inner man. And that instant, we would be changed. We would see Christ in all His glory. And, and He would be what he, who He is and what He ought to be to us. Our everything. In Jesus' name we pray.